destroying the vandals. Rebuilding the Hagia Sophia was the most direct and obvious way Justinian found to recover from the ignominy of the Nika riots. But it was not his only response. Much further from home, in the early 530s, the emperor secured what he came to regard as the signal achievement of his long reign. This was the conquest, or rather reconquest, of North Africa from the Vandals. The province and its prestigious capital, Carthage, had been wrenched from Roman hands during the tumult of the barbarian migrations. So its recapture would be both a lucrative enterprise, given the continuing prosperity of the region under Vandal rule, and a Philip for Roman pride. Justinian's Carthaginian project was made possible in strategic and practical terms, because in September 532, the emperor agreed a treaty with the Persian king of kings, Cosro I. This new monarch had come to power in autumn 531, aged around 18. He needed time to secure his shaky domestic position, so agreed to end a bitter war that had been raging between Rome and Persia around Armenia for four years. The deal Justinian's ambassadors struck with Cosro was known as the Eternal Peace. This title was bombastic, inaccurate, and its terms obliged Justinian to pay Cosro £11,000 of gold in return for a ceasefire. Nevertheless, it left the emperor free to focus on campaigns in the West. And he wasted no time. Just nine months after hostilities in Persia ceased, in the summer of 533, a huge invasion fleet mustered in the waters off Constantinople. It carried 15,000 mixed infantry and cavalry in hundreds of transporter ships, accompanied by 92 oared warships known as dromons. At the head stood Belisarius, the general who had cut his teeth in Persia, then sunk them into the Nicorioters in the Hippodrome. This was a fearsome armada. In summer 533, Belisarius sailed this fleet out of Constantinople and headed towards Vandal territory, some 1,500 kilometres away. After a couple of weeks at sea, he made port in Sicily and Belisarius took stock of the latest intelligence from Carthage. The news was promising. The Vandal king of the day was called Gelimer. Three years previously, he had seized the Vandal throne by deposing his cousin Hilderic. At the time of Gelimer's usurpation, Justinian had written to lecture him on his impertinence. What came by return of post was a letter laced with irony, informing him that Gelimer was well within his rights and advising Justinian to quit his meddling. It is well for one to administer the kingly office which belongs to him and not to make the concerns of others his own, wrote Gelimer. If you should come against us, we shall oppose you with all our power. But in 533, Gelimer's powers of opposition were vanishingly slight. The Vandal king was caught off guard by Belisarius' arrival. He was absent from Carthage, and a large number of his best troops were on campaign in Sardinia. Apprised of these facts on Sicily, Belisarius headed straight across the Mediterranean, landed in Tunisia, and, in early September, marched on Carthage. He crushed a Vandal army in the field at Ad Decimum, killing their commander, Gelimer's brother, Amata. On the 14th of September, he rode into the Vandal capital. 
The general entered Jellima's palace on top of the Bursa Hill, sat on his throne, and helped himself to a lunch prepared the previous day by Jellima's own chefs. It fell to the lot of Belisarius on that day to win such fame as no one of the men of his time ever won, nor indeed any of the men of olden times, wrote Procopius, who was there when lunch was served. Even if we allow for Procopius's addiction to hyperbole, Belisarius had achieved a major coup. Justinian was so thrilled when news of Carthage's fall arrived back in Constantinople that he awarded himself the names Vandalicus and Africanus. And even greater victories followed. For a short time, Gelima led an insurgent campaign against the occupying imperial army, offering payment in gold for each Roman head that the farmers and peasants of the North African countryside brought before him. But the guerrilla war was soon over. In December, the Vandals were defeated in a second battle at Tricamarum. Gelima fled to a mountain hideout near the ancient city of Medeus. Here he was surrounded by Belisarius's troops and, after a few months of a winter siege, starved into submission. By the time he was taken prisoner, the Vandal king had drifted into a state of remarkable zen. During final negotiations to lift the mountain siege, he said his only desires were a loaf of bread, a sponge to help him wash his eyes, and a lyre on which to compose a lament. Later, when it was clear he could no longer avoid capture, he wrote, I cannot resist fortune further, nor rebel against fate, but I shall follow straight away wherever it seems to her best to lead. Fortune, through the agency of Belisarius, saw fit to lead him to Constantinople, where he was presented to Justinian as a prisoner of war. In the summer of 534, a formal triumph took place at the Hippodrome to mark the completion of the African campaign, which Procopius called the greatest since the days of Titus and Trajan. The crowning moment came when Gelima was paraded in front of the citizens, along with 2,000 other Vandal prisoners, all tall and fair. Brought before the feet of the emperor, Gelima was stripped of his royal robes and made to lie prone. Yet even at this humiliating moment, the Vandal ruler kept his cool. When Gelima reached the Hippodrome and saw the Empress sitting upon a lofty seat and the people standing on either side and realised as he looked about in what an evil plight he was, he neither wept nor cried out, wrote Procopius. He recited again and again the words of the preacher at the start of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This enigmatic display was enough to convince Justinian to show mercy. Gelima had gamely served his purpose in entertaining the public, so he was pensioned off with his family to live out a long retirement in Asia Minor. Meanwhile, his fellow warriors were co-opted into the Byzantine army and sent east on the Persian frontier, where the eternal peace with Persia was soon to prove rather less eternal than advertised and the image of the humbled barbarian became a mainstay of Justinianic propaganda, elaborated in brilliant mosaic murals on the ceiling of the main entrance to the imperial palace, and many years later literally stitched into the fabric of his funeral decorations. There was good reason for this. Reconquering Roman North Africa was a substantial achievement. It threw up considerable policy complexities for the occupying Byzantine government, no doubt, 
for Arianism had to be stamped out in the province and a continuing balance struck between Chalcedonians and Miaphysites. Incursions by Moorish tribes in the south also required constant military vigilance. Balanced against this, though, was the fact that defeating the Vandals had reactivated trading networks between North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean, the effect of which lasted a long time. There would be a Byzantine presence in Carthage until the end of the 8th century. And most immediately, the Vandal campaign provided a roadmap to further conquests in the central Mediterranean. Justinian's next target was Ostrogoth, Italy, where Rome's other capital was, like Carthage, in barbarian hands. However, rebuilding the old Roman Empire would not prove so easy as a regime change in one of its former provinces. And this was not only because the costs were vast. Justinian's vision of Roman reconquest was complicated by the appearance of an enemy far more obdurate and deadly than any number of barbarian armies. It was Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that caused bubonic plague. God's Education In the first decade of his reign, Justinian had reformed and rebuilt the Eastern Roman Empire in ways that would outlive him by many centuries, forming the basis for a distinctive new Byzantine era of imperial history. And he was showing no signs of letting up. Following Gelimer's defeat and the occupation of Vandal North Africa, the emperor sent Belisarius back to the west. This time he was to take on the Ostrogoths of Ravenna, who, as kings of Italy, now ruled the lands of Romulus, Julius Caesar and Augustus. As usual, Belisarius performed brilliantly, sweeping through Sicily before setting his sights on the Italian mainland. But he did so amid ominous portents, which seemed to suggest that the very universe, and not only the Roman Empire, was twisting into a strange new shape. The first sign came in 536, when, out of nowhere, the whole atmosphere seemed to change. Across the world, the sun dimmed, the sky darkened to a murky gloom, and temperatures dropped appreciably, much as happens during a solar eclipse. Unlike an eclipse, however, these odd sights did not pass in the space of a few minutes, but lasted 18 months. It was, wrote Procopius, a most dread portent, for the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon, during this whole year. The deathly gloom was probably the result of a massive volcanic eruption, perhaps in North America, perhaps in Iceland, perhaps in the mid-Pacific, which released gargantuan clouds of ash and dust. And it was followed in 539 or 40 by another vast volcanic eruption, probably at Ilopango in modern El Salvador. Together, these natural explosions spewed out several dozen cubic miles of rock and pumped more than one million tons of sulphur and ash into the Earth's skies, ushering in one of the sharpest global environmental crises in human history. As a result, the world's climate changed for as much as a decade. Temperatures fell by at least two degrees Celsius globally, and summers effectively disappeared. From Ireland to China, crops withered and harvests failed. Agricultural production collapsed. Tree growth slowed. In some cases, trees died where they stood. 
Procopius was sure it marked a major and historic shift in imperial fortunes. From the time when this thing happened, he mused, men were free neither from war nor pestilence, nor any other thing leading to death. The first round of deaths was man-made. Beneath leaden skies, Belisarius led Byzantine forces on a rampage north through Italy, taking Reggio and Naples before riding bloodlessly into Rome, whose citizens chose not to resist him. By May 540, he had fought his way to the royal capital at Ravenna, and a truce was eventually drawn up by which Italy was partitioned between the Ostrogoths north of the river Po and the Byzantines to the south. Although the Ostrogoths' king, Vitiges, was deposed and taken back to Constantinople, his people were subjected to a surprisingly gentle peace. But clemency was a matter of necessity, for in June of the same year, a Persian army under Cosro I invaded Byzantine Syria and sacked the great city of Antioch, burning and plundering it with terrible loss of life. Another cycle of war between Rome and Persia loomed. Although this was only clear in hindsight, the Eastern Empire was about to enter a debilitating phase of conflict on both fronts, with fighting in Italy dragging on until the 560s and the Persian conflict for two generations more. Then amid all this came the plague. Although its origins cannot be precisely placed, the disease may first have originated in the Tian Shan Mountains, which today separate China from Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and followed the Silk Road trading superhighway west. So it was by no means an unknown ailment by the 6th century AD. Outbreaks had occurred in the Roman world as recently as the 520s. Yet plague had seldom been anything more than an intense local phenomenon, until somehow, between the 520s and 540s, possibly in southeast Africa, around the ivory markets of what is now Zanzibar, the disease mutated into a super-lethal strain. It then met with environmental conditions ripe for easy infection. The climate crisis of 536 contributed to this by weakening human and rat populations and forcing them into closer-than-usual cohabitation. And it spread rapidly along the long-established and booming trade networks around the Mediterranean. In July 541, the population of the small Egyptian delta town of Pelusium, now Tel El Farama, started dying in droves, their armpits and groins swollen and black, nightmarish fever visions dancing before their agonised eyes. From this incubator town, the disease raced off in two directions, northeast, with the merchant ships and caravan trains that worked the Palestinian coast towards Syria and Asia Minor, and west, through the busy ports of North Africa. For nearly two years it spread and spread and spread in a manner that terrified contemporaries and has puzzled historians for many years. The hideous scenes that greeted writers like Procopius, John of Ephesus and the Syrian scholar Evagrius Scholasticus, empty streets and corpse piles from which bodily fluids leaked like juice from grapes, shuttered shops and hungry children, the raving sick driven demented by the sight of ghosts the broken-hearted bereaved who tried suicidally to infect themselves, the miscarrying mothers and the hundreds upon thousands of lost souls, racked the world, flaring up at different places and different times. In Constantinople, where the pandemic was said by Procopius to have killed 10,000 people a day during a four-month peak, 
Justinian himself was infected, suffering dangerous swelling around a flea bite on his thigh. After a fashion, he recovered, and his capital city eventually returned to some semblance of normality. On the 23rd of March, 543, the emperor declared God's education over. But this was the same wishful thinking that has traditionally accompanied any political statement about pandemic disease delivered with certain authority. Bubonic plague, in fact, continued to sweep and swirl around the Mediterranean world for the rest of the decade, resurfacing time and again all over the world until AD 749. How many people it killed in total during these pestilent years is today a matter of live historical debate, most of it largely speculative, with a range of opinions running from hardly anyone to 100 million people. But the economic disruption was real, wildly fluctuating wheat prices, rapid wage inflation as ready labourers vanished, an overwhelmed inheritance system, and a near total crash in construction. It compounded the strains on Justinian's fiscal system, which was already stretched by the emperor's military adventures. Tax rates soared and remained high for many years, and this was all quite beside the horrors that pulsed through the accounts of eyewitnesses like John of Antioch. The aghast testimony of these survivors tell us all too bleakly of the scars the pandemic left on the popular psyche. Things fall apart. In 547, the Basilica di San Vitale in Ravenna was officially consecrated. A thick-set, imposing church built in terracotta and marble to an octagonal plan. It was the product of more than 20 years' work, the foundations having been laid early in the reign of Theodoric's daughter, the Ostrogothic queen regent Amalasuntha. Yet by the time the Archbishop of Ravenna, Maximian, came to consecrate San Vitale, the Ostrogoths had been driven from Ravenna and momentarily seemed to be in retreat throughout Italy. Pride of place among the stunning mosaics that decorated the glorious new basilica therefore went to portraits of the Byzantine emperor and empress Justinian and Theodora. Justinian glared out menacingly from the wall, flanked by barbarian mercenaries and a number of stern-faced clerics, some tonsured and others uncropped and unshaven. Theodora, meanwhile, commanded her own posse. Two male clerics were pictured assisting her as she offered an exquisite gold vessel to a gushing font, while around her demure women looked on, all finely clothed, with their hair covered. Even today, visitors to the basilica can still find themselves entranced by the sheer majesty of Justinian and Theodora's portraits, swayed, even if they think they know better, by the force of the political narrative. Simply to have these images on display in Ravenna in 547 was quite an achievement. It had been more than 50 years since the Roman capital had been lost to the Ostrogoths, but the emperor refused to accept it was never coming back. The great warrior Belisarius, himself represented in the basilica's mosaics on Justinian's side, had led the charge, fighting his way from Sicily all the way up to Ravenna, which had fallen in 540. True, the war for Italy was far from over, for even as the Basilica of San Vitale was consecrated, Belisarius was busy on the other side of Italy, fighting over the city of Rome with a tenacious and powerful Ostrogoth king called Totila. All the same, 
Here was a moment to celebrate a rehabilitation of Byzantine fortunes in Europe, and perhaps even the first step towards restoring something of the Roman Empire in the West. Yet if the consecration of the Basilica of San Vitale was a boon, and the Byzantine mosaics inside it are still one of the most astonishing sights in all of Italy, it was not long before tragedy followed. The following year, in June, Theodora died, probably of cancer. She was around 50 years old, and her death grieved Justinian, now over 65, very bitterly. The two had been true political partners, and it was Theodora who had saved them from oblivion during the Nico riots. She had forged a quite amazing path from her wild days on the seedy fringe of the Hippodrome to her position as Augusta, whose toes petitioners at the imperial court had to kiss before submitting their requests. Justinian wept at her funeral and it is not hard to imagine that his tears were of genuine sorrow and not merely for public display. And this was more than mere personal tragedy, for in retrospect, Theodora's death marked, or at least coincided with, a turning point in Justinian's fortunes. The hard-won victories of the first half of his reign, the sweeping legal reforms, survival in the face of the Nico riots, the building of the Hagia Sophia, reconquests in Africa and Italy, were in the past. More trouble than triumph now lay ahead. Some of the deepest and most intractable problems Justinian faced concerned religion. Try as he might, he never found a satisfactory route through the violent theological arguments that tortured the empire and the church throughout the 6th century. Divisions between Chalcedonians and Miaphysites were harder than ever to reconcile after Theodora's death for her strong support for the latter had offered balance within the imperial palace, allowing Justinian a degree of insurance in his religious policy. Without her, he was dangerously weakened. Additionally, many of his policies actively created religious problems. His attempts to recapture old Roman territories were a case in point. Almost wherever Byzantine troops set foot, sectarianism loomed. And by laying claim to barbarian lands, such as Carthage, Justinian was increasingly exposed to the nasty divisions that raged between Arians and Catholics. Justinian was by no means blind to these troubles, but he singularly lacked a way to fix them, and his great attempt at religious healing, a gathering of the church known as the Fifth Ecumenical Council, held in Constantinople in the early summer of 553, was an expensive public failure. Hardly any Western bishops attended, and in the end, the council served best to highlight the dismal fractures in the church and the seeming impossibilities of agreeing a common position on the precise nature of Christ, as well as hinting at a future in which the churches of Constantinople and Rome, much like the Roman empires that had nurtured them, would strike out in different directions. A generation later, the great scholar Isidore of Seville dismissed the validity of the Fifth Ecumenical Council altogether. Isidore thought that Justinian was a tyrant and a heretic. In 6th century theology, there were no merits awarded for effort. Nor were things any easier in foreign policy. In Italy, the consecration of San Vitale and Ravenna was not followed by a pacification and full re-annexation of the peninsula. Instead, violence and Ostrogothic resistance peaked. The Ostrogoth king Totila, whom Procopius saw in person and described as devastatingly skilled on horseback, 
typically riding into battle with a gold-cheeked helmet on his head, tossing a javelin expertly from hand to hand, and swivelling on his mount, like one who had been instructed with precision in the art of dancing from childhood, proved a very tough nut to crack. In January 550, he scored a resounding victory when his men swept through Rome itself, killing everyone they could lay their hands on. There was a great slaughter, recalled Procopius, who went on to describe the roadblocks Totila set up on all the major routes away from Rome, which helped them catch and kill Byzantine soldiers trying to escape the rout. Time and again, the Ostrogoth had the better of Justinian's generals, and it took repeated surges of tens of thousands of troops into Italy to stop it from being overrun. Only in 552 was Totila finally defeated. In 554, Justinian issued a decree known as the Pragmatic Sanction, which declared Italy a province of the empire with its capital at Ravenna. Separate government systems were established for the island states of Sardinia, Sicily and Corsica. But even then, Italy remained unstable, for while the Ostrogoths had been destroyed, so had much of the Italian countryside. Thousands had died during the fighting, cities were ruined by siege, aristocratic estates lay ravaged, slaves had run away. Italy was considerably poorer than it had been at the outset of the war, because the Byzantine army had pursued victory so doggedly, they ended up slashing the value of their prize. So although Italy was theoretically theirs, Byzantine control of the territory was patchy at best. What emerged, therefore, was a government trying to project power from Constantinople, nearly 2,000 kilometres away. Meanwhile, across the Alps, a barbarian group known as the Lombards, some of whom had served as mercenaries in the Byzantine army, were now beginning to plot an Italian invasion of their own. Within three decades of the pragmatic sanctions promulgation, many of Justinian's hard-won gains in Italy had been lost, the colony too feeble to defend itself when another power threatened. Although the Byzantine Empire would retain an interest in Italy and its islands until the 10th century, after Justinian's day, the prospect of reconnecting the two old halves of the Roman Empire seemed to diminish with every passing generation. One of the reasons that Justinian had such difficulty crushing the Ostrogoths in Italy was that he was also troubled sporadically throughout his reign by the Persians in the east. His main tormentor in those parts was Cosroe I. The Persian king was a highly intelligent and judicious ruler with an omnivorous curiosity, an especially keen interest in philosophy and a rigorous approach to legal reform. Although the dominant religion in Persia was Zoroastrianism, he understood the value of making his empire safe for renegades, like the pagan scholars of the Athens philosophy school, as well as the burgeoning Christian populations in his major cities. Like Justinian, Khosrow was also an avid builder, famed for erecting huge fortifying walls around his kingdom. His own masterwork, every bit as glorious as the Hagia Sophia, was the Tak Khasra, a palace whose signature architectural flourish was its astonishing brick-built vault, the lonely ruins of which are the only visible remains of the once mighty city of Tessaphon in modern-day Iraq. Khosrow's building projects mattered because they were an extension of his sense of self. He fancied he was a new Cyrus the Great. The detailed history of Justinian's wars with Khosrow 
lies beyond the scope of this chapter. Suffice it to say, however, that besides the long-standing historical tendency of two neighbouring empires to jostle for position and preeminence, Byzantium and Persia both nursed an economic interest in the lucrative Silk Road mercantile trails which ran through their borderlands. The economic and geographical reality of this was the chief reason why their eternal peace of the 530s lasted less than ten years. In 540, Khosrow invaded Syria, capturing and deporting tens of thousands of prisoners and slaves. Thereafter came a cycle of seemingly ceaseless wars and pieces, a truce in 545, broken by 548, a truce in 551, broken in 554, a 50-year peace in 562, which proved to be anything but, and so on. The empires sponsored proxies in a war between rival Arab tribes on their borders, and they clashed directly over sensitive border spots like a triangle of territory known as Lazica, which lay on the eastern coast of the Black Sea. There was precious little respite, and seemingly no end to the financial and military demands that the war placed on Constantinople. In the 540s, Justinian had unveiled a massive monumental column to himself in the centre of his capital, in the square known as the Augustium, which lay between the Hagia Sophia and the Great Palace. On top of a steepling brick and bronze pillar, the emperor was depicted on horseback in bronze sculpture. He carried an orb in his left hand, the world surmounted by a cross, and raised his right in salute to the east, the direction of Persia. Spreading out his fingers, he orders the barbarians in that place to remain at home, wrote Procopius. A headdress lavishly plumed was an unsubtle attempt to suggest ancient Achilles. But for all the bluster of this sort of visual propaganda, Justinian ultimately found the Persian problem as intractable as his wranglings over the church. Byzantium and Persia seemed destined for an endless war, at least until some other great power arose in the region. One would, as we shall see in the next chapter, but Justinian was not around to bear witness to it. Unsurprisingly, all of this took its toll on Justinian himself, who shared the misfortune of many great rulers in living to see his achievements creak and fall. In 557-8, a series of earthquakes and tremors brought down the dome of the Hagia Sophia. A year later, a coalition of barbarian Slavs from beyond the Danube, a tribe called the Kutrigas, overran imperial defences and menaced the walls of Constantinople itself. Although they were repelled, the terror in the capital was palpable, and Justinian was forced to call an ageing Belisarius out of retirement in order to chase the Kutriga horsemen away. It was the old general's swan song. Two years after saving the city, Belisarius was implicated in a plot against the emperor and forced to undergo the humiliations of a public trial. Although pardoned of his supposed crimes, Belisarius died in the spring of 565 with his reputation in shreds. The emperor died soon after Belisarius, on the 14th of November 565. He lay in stately splendour in his palace, having nominated as successor his nephew Justin II. His funerary beer was decorated with images of his pomp, grinding Jelima beneath his heels as barbarians looked on in fear. 
Here was the emperor of the 530s, hell-bent on restoring the glory of Rome, driving back the tides of history, even as he did so. Yet as Gelima had warned, for earthly kings, all was vanity. And once Justinian was dead, many of his achievements were in danger of melting away. Amid the uncertainty of the 560s, Justinian's heyday must have felt like a very long time ago. After Justinian In any age, Justinian's reign would have been a hard act to follow, and his immediate successors struggled to deal with the legacy he bequeathed. His nephew, Justin II, reigned for 13 years, during which time he shored up the parlous imperial finances, but acquired a reputation as a tyrant and a miser, who was troubled by the Lombards in Italy, tribal raids across the Danube, and perpetual difficulties on the Persian border. Eventually, and perhaps understandably, Justin went mad, his descent coming after a disastrous reverse on the Persian front, during which Cosro took the critical Byzantine border fortress of Dara. From 574 until his death in 578, Justin was intermittently incoherent, and power was shared uneasily in Constantinople between his wife, Sophia, and the commander of the palace, Justin's adopted son, Tiberius. Tiberius eventually became emperor in his own right, although without very much more success than Justin. His greatest historical legacy, perhaps, was that he was a native Greek speaker, for whom Latin was a comprehensible but nonetheless foreign language. After him, Greek would become the tongue of the palace and the empire, as Constantinople sloughed off ever more of its cultural ties to the old Rome and the world of the western Mediterranean. His other notable achievement was the bizarre nature of his demise. He died, or so the story went, when he ate a dish of poisoned mulberries in August 582. Tiberius's successor was his son-in-law Morris, a general cut from much the same distinguished cloth as the late Belisarius. Morris was the author of a seminal military text known as the Strategicon, which became staple reading for aspiring officers across the West for nearly 1,000 years. It was just as well that Morris knew how to plan a battle, because his 20-year reign threw up a lot of them. In Persia, Morris achieved a significant coup when he interfered in a Persian succession dispute to depose Hormizd IV and replace him with his son Khosrow II. Morris formally adopted Khosrow and agreed a new perpetual peace with Persia. But things did not go so well in Italy, where Byzantine territory was now designated the Exarchate of Ravenna. There, the Lombards remained an immovable presence. Morris fell out frequently with Pope Gregory I, the Great, who resented the Patriarch of Constantinople's claim to be the ecumenical leader of the entire church. And in the Balkans, Morris spent his entire reign struggling to hold the Avars at bay. In 602, he appeared to have pushed them back beyond the Danube for good, yet even this was not the boon it seemed. Morris's insistence that his troops overwinter north of the Danube combined with his long-standing drive to hold down military pay, sent the army into mutiny, under an officer called Phocas. In November, rebel soldiers marched on Constantinople, the people rioted, and Morris fled. He was later caught and killed, along with his sons. His corpse was abused and displayed in public. 
This was a frightening new insertion of violence into imperial politics, and this would become something of a Byzantine specialty, hereditary monarchy attenuated by murder. After eight years of fairly incompetent rule, Phocas was himself deposed and slaughtered in 610. Phocas's killer, Heraclius, was in a sense the real heir to Justinian. This was not only because he contracted a somewhat scandalous marriage, his second wife was his niece Martina, an incestuous match which should have been illegal. He reigned for more than three decades and brought to conclusion many of the tiresome struggles that had begun nearly a century earlier. Under his rule, Byzantine ambitions in Italy were quietly downgraded, from dreams of conquest to maintenance of what was held. The Balkan front was shored up, North Africa was secured, but a small Byzantine presence in Visigothic Spain was abandoned, finally ending Roman interests in old Hispania. And the Persian question was spectacularly settled in favour of the empire, although the effort came at near fatal cost to both sides. In other words, after Heraclius's reign, the empire's territorial transformation from Rome to Byzantium was complete. It was now a Greek-speaking state, focused on dominating the eastern Mediterranean, with power concentrated in Constantinople and its most important geopolitical rivals lying to the south and east. That was how it would remain, more or less, for eight and a half centuries. But there was one last twist in the story. The defining struggle of Heraclius's reign was the war with Persia. Shortly after his usurpation, Byzantium was on the verge of annihilation. During the 610s, Khosrow II, having conveniently forgotten that it was Byzantium who had put him on his throne, sent armies slicing through Roman territory. They took Mesopotamia, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and much of Asia Minor. When the city of Jerusalem fell in 614, the Persians seized Christianity's most precious relic, a fragment of the true cross on which Jesus had died. To make matters worse, the chaos they sowed in the east had enabled tribes like the Avars to sweep into the Balkans. The next year, Persians could be seen on military manoeuvres in the Bosphorus, and Heraclius was making desperate plans to remove the capital of his empire to Carthage and leave Constantinople to its fate. Never had Rome come so close to destruction. Had Heraclius not sued for a costly and desperate peace, 615 may well have been the end of the story. Yet it was not. Having saved his city, Heraclius spent the next seven years rebuilding his military, preparing to take the fight back to Cosro. In the 620s, that is what he did, with spectacular results. His policy of marching his armies behind banners showing icons of Christ, giving an explicitly holy aspect to his war of reconquest, would echo loudly several centuries later during the Crusades. And just as would happen during the Crusades, Christ seemed to grant his people dazzling success. In four campaigning seasons, Byzantine soldiers destroyed their Persian opponents in Armenia and Mesopotamia. After a thunderous victory at the Battle of Nineveh in 628, Heraclius came close to capturing Tesaphon itself. He regained the true cross, which was sent back to Jerusalem in triumph. The same year, Cosro II was overthrown in a palace coup and murdered. His son Cavad II, who led the plot, straightaway sued for peace and returned 
all the territories his father had seized. Here, at last, was a form of eternal peace. Six centuries of intermittent war between the Roman and Persian empires died with Cosro II. Heraclius adopted a new style of title. He would no longer be Augustus, but Basilius, Basilius, a Greek term implying an equivalent majesty to the Persians' king of kings. Every Byzantine emperor would follow the tradition. However, if victory over the Persians was resounding and total, this did not mean that the Byzantine Empire was free to return to regional supremacy. Because for all that he had achieved, Heraclius found in the end that he was every bit as vulnerable as Justinian, the fortune's ever-turning wheel. Vanity, Gelima had warned, all was vanity. No sooner had Persia been defeated than a new power reared its head. The Arabs were coming. <laughs>